it is hard to hire. You will get it wrong. Not every hire, no matter how great they are, is the right fit for your organization or land well. It doesn't stop at hiring. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to world-class investors and even Olympians, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Sandra Schwarzer, a global talent executive who focuses on the complex relationship between recruitment, culture, and organizational strategy. Sandra serves as a collaborator and thought partner to the founders in Index Ventures portfolio as they go through their growth and scale-up phases, advising on all talent-related matters and connecting them to the best C-suite and board talent in Europe. Prior to joining Index, Sandra had a stellar career at the executive search firm Russell Reynolds and led the global HR, security and facilities functions at Open Society Foundations, George Soros' $23 billion private philanthropic vehicle. She also worked at NCAD across France and Singapore as the director of MBA and EMBA and alumni career services. JBM has had the huge pleasure of working closely with Sandra and the Index Ventures team over the years. She has been a real mentor to me, so I am especially excited to welcome her on the podcast to share her brilliant mentorship with you all. So, Sandra, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited for this. It's been a long time coming, so thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm fabulous. I'm so excited to be here today with you all. Good stuff. Well, we are going to warm you up with some quickfire questions, as we always do. So please, can you finish the following sentences after me? Number one, a myth I'd like to bust about VC is... We're not at all transactional, even though that's the perception I certainly had of the industry before coming in. It's all about building very deep relationships. Love that. And I think that's very similar to the executive search world. It's all about relationships. The hardest part of working in VC is? It can feel like running an ultra marathon that is comprised of thousands of sprints going on simultaneously. What a great description. That sounds very accurate based on how much I know you have to do all the time. Very true. And finally, the one thing I'd like to change about VC is? that we continue to hire more people from more diverse backgrounds and bring this workforce into a very different kind of way of looking, thinking and talking. I am wholeheartedly behind that. And I think that is going to be a topic of conversation uh, on, that's ongoing for us in this chat, but also the rest of the series, because uh, it's something that still needs a lot of work. But I'm optimistic that we're going to make headroads in that this year. Thank you, Sandra. Well, we're going to jump deep into your CV, explore lots of different topics today. But before we get to index, which I know a lot of our audience are going to be excited to hear about, I'd love to go back and find out a bit about early life. Tell us if you don't mind about your upbringing and background and how it's impacted the person you are today. I actually have a quite unique story, I think. I grew up in in East Berlin when the wall was still up in a fairly traditional Eastern German family, but my mother decided to flee the country with me in the mid-80s. And so I got to see both sides of Germany while the wall was still up. And at the age of 10, had to relearn everything I knew. I spoke the language, if you want to, because we all spoke German, but I didn't have any of the cultural norms. I didn't really understand what was going on. Everything was different and we had to start new and, and it was just my mom and I. And I think that really fueled my desire to always make sure that voices were heard that usually don't get any visibility and, and to really help me shape into what I do best now, which is try and understand people and try and listen and, and, and get to their story. Quickly, though, it, growing up, I, I think the, the fact that I was not able to travel as a young child was very quickly uh, top of my mind. So I left home for the U.S. when I was 15. I came back to Germany. I left again to go to France uh, just after my high school stayed with there for 15 years, moved to New York, moved to London. So there's definitely a, a desire to explore the world and experience the world as it is. And then one thing, I think that a lot of people know about me because I speak very openly about it. I'm a, a very happy single parent of two children. But what that meant is that life didn't always go in a straight line. It, it threw me a couple of, of curveballs that I wasn't expecting. And so a lot of my time also spent is showing people that there's a way through 
when you have those moments and when you don't really know what the next day will look like. That's really inspiring. And I didn't know that about your your early upbringing, actually. That's really interesting. I've got to ask on, on that point, it must have been a very daunting, scary place when you, you're kind of, you move to a totally new place that is kind of, is very similar, but very different. So how did you deal with that at the time? And do you feel like some of the, the resilience you learned then has helped you later in life? Yeah, it was definitely daunting. I didn't know what we were going to face on the other side, right? We in East Germany were very shielded from what life really was like, apart from the propaganda. And so it was learning everything new. I think the biggest thing for me is I, I ended up in a place where while I never took roots, I found one of my best friends who's been with me through my life uh, since then. And so it, it kind of showed me that no matter where you go and no matter whether you have to start new, you will find people that will make you feel you belong. And you will find people who can help you translate what is actually happening so that you can learn. Because it's like, a, it's a, as I said, it's, it was a new language, it was a different culture, it was different norms you know everything was different the food the clothes how people dress what they valued I had to relearn everything and it it's really shaped in me this ability to to see what's going on when you don't understand the language I think that's really the curiosity to find that out has kind of come from that one Sandra you've you've got this stellar CV you've had amazing experiences and to the outside world it all probably looks like everything's gone brilliantly for you, but I know for a fact that that isn't always the case and you've had to deal with a lot of challenges along the way. So do you mind sharing some of those from your career and any learnings you've taken from it just to inspire anyone that might be going through a difficult time right now? In um, 2013, I, I moved to the UK and a year later I was about to prepare to get on my second maternity leave for my second child. When my now ex-husband was thinking about what he wanted to do with his life and it didn't align anymore. And so I found myself from one day to the other in a country where I pretty much knew no one, had no family friends, had only just arrived with a three-year-old and a baby about to be born and entirely on my own. And I remember going back to work after I'd had my son and going back to work relatively quickly because I was the main breadwinner and I needed to continue to earn money. And one of my colleagues on the first day back looked at me and said, like, so how's your husband doing with a second child? And I couldn't help myself. And I said, he's great. And I went home that evening and I remember like going home and going like, if I can't be honest about what's happening in my life, how do I ever expect to be part of a culture and building a culture where authenticity kind of is at its core? And I remember going back the next day and I was entirely scared because here I am in, you know, in a different country, all the things you have to deal with already when you have two young children is one thing, but now you're, you're dealing with a divorce and you're dealing with the stigma that's still attached to, especially single moms more generally and and I went back into a town hall and I stood up in front and I, I explained what was happening in my life and also I've asked for their help because I I was sure that I probably wasn't behaving I wasn't being myself at work as I was dealing through all of this I think the thing it, it's really taught me is you can't expect others to be open if you're not open yourself and it was incredible to watch how many people came forward with their own stories and those were stories of grief and loss and those were stories of dealing with sick family members of things that were happening that we often forget about in the workday because we just don't have the time. And it's helped me really figure out how do you put one foot in front of the other? And, and I was very, very lucky. I, I had a boss at the time who had been through a divorce and, and his counsel to me is like, you need time. You need to kind of find out who you are in this new setup before you can launch yourself into doing anything else. And he kind of gave me the gift of having a little bit more time than what I had in my head set myself as somebody who was quite ambitious and driven and wanted to conquer the world. But it's true that I spend a lot of my time now also talking about it because I feel like I was still incredibly privileged because I had a job and I knew uh, my, my income would be enough to help. And I know there are so many people out there for whom this is not the case. So I talk about it so that people see like there is a hope and there's a way out and there's a way around like figuring out who you are and, and continuing on your journey despite the challenges. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that openness and vulnerability, I think I really hope will inspire anyone else that might be going through a similar sort of stage in life at the moment, whatever the situation, I think it is often better to talk about it. And I think just being more vocal, I've tried myself, I'm very guilty of um, over the years of bottling things up. I realized 
almost too late in some instances that actually it's so much better to talk and that might be to one person it might be as you did in the town hall but actually the more open we are and vulnerable and the more we destigmatize some of these taboos and topics that really are not those things but they feel like them in our you know internally the better you know work and life will be i think and uh, i am so grateful that you said that because i'm sure that will have helped people listening so thank you very much i really appreciate it well we touched upon your very impressive cv and it really is the brands and the companies you've worked at enviable but i'd love to dig and we're going to talk lots about index but we'd love to just explore a bit of the the earlier moves and particularly hear in your own words what your personal highlights were because i'd imagine there's quite a few but what stands out in the pre-index career Well, I definitely had a lot of things that I stumbled upon rather than have a plan and go after them. When I was at INSEAD, at one point, I wanted to find out a little bit more about what motivates people and what makes some people successful in changing careers. So I uh, studied for a master in um, an organization of psychology at INSEAD, and I wrote my thesis about the psychological barriers you need to overcome when you're changing careers. I've definitely come up to prove a point. So I started my career, believe it or not, in a very, very French bank, in a part of a French bank that is as traditional as you can probably get. And clearly there was a mismatch between what I thought I would get myself into and the reality and probably on the other side as well, what they thought they were getting themselves into and and the reality of having me there. And about a week after starting, I, I realized that I had not taken the role that would have been the best suited for me. It was a very interesting role and and it definitely got me to where I am today. But I asked my mentor at the time, how do I get out of this? Like, what do I do? I'm in France where, especially at the time, transferable skills and transferable careers just didn't exist. And he looked at me and he's like, I don't know how you get out of there, but why don't you pretend that you're a journalist? And why don't you write an article about the young professionals trap when people get stuck in their first either university or in their first career and they don't really know what to do? And so I interviewed pretty much anybody I could get my hands on, 100 people over the course of a year while working. And figured out as I was talking to them, what are the things that I was really interested in? Because I could tell that after the conversations, I would go out really excited and I would think about, oh, I could do this job and I could do something. And it was still kind of in my head when one of the people I'd interviewed happened to be a headhunter, called me and said, I have this strange job and don't read the job description, but read the candidate description first. And it was to join INSEAD initially to advise MBA students on their career choices when it came to technology, finance, and nonprofit. But very quickly, I was promoted to to lead the entire career services. I think INSEAD remains to this day one of my career highlights. It is a fantastic place, not just to study, but also to work. There were people from over 80 nationalities, no dominating nationality because they, in their student body, limited to 10%. We had such pace and such fun and so many new things that we could build and do and, and a team that I really feel today is still my team, even though they've, uh, they've ended up doing lots of different things, that those six years were probably one of the highlights. And then I was writing my thesis and researching about career change. And my mentor called me, the same person who had advised me to write the article and said, hey, you know, I think it's time for you to do something different. And he introduced me to somebody that, that led to me moving to New York to take on a, a global chief people officer equivalent role in the US in an organization I didn't know because they wanted a a restart and they wanted somebody to build something different with people at the center. And that I think really is what what I like doing the most. Wow. Your mentor knows you so well. I mean, that that is uh, the trust and I guess the, yeah, the insight that your mentor must have had to know that this was the right time and a good move for you and for you to trust them is just, that's really powerful in itself. And I think it just goes to show like, the impact mentors can have in careers and it opens doors and and that you threw yourself at the new challenge that's really amazing i found it really interesting that you you almost became like a journalist and you interviewed these people and it i guess it reminded me of the early days of a 40 minute mentor and how much i've got from interviewing just incredible leaders it's really been like an mba to me and that sort of leads into the the talent piece and the people piece and they're all kind of mixed together i'm seeing all these different threads join up but have you always felt a passion for talent or was that just another example of you just stumbling into just something because you obviously went on to become a, a very successful headhunter so where did that come from i think i've always had a passion for people 
And because I love storytelling and I love listening to people's story, I have had an ability to help people formulate their own story and see connections that they might not have seen before. And the fact that that has become my job, it makes me very happy and, and makes me smile a lot when I go to work and when I come home from work, which is great. But I didn't think there was a career in this. Like if you had met me when I was 20 and you had said, I'm going to end up running talent in Europe for Index Ventures. I didn't even know what that was at the time, but I would have probably gone like, no, never. I'm going to do something entirely different. And so it's for me, it's also this ability to learn something new and to what I know best and what I enjoy the most, getting better at it and doing more of it. And somebody referred to me when I was at INSEAD, they referred to me as yellow pages, but I think that speaks more to my age rather than anything else. Somebody the other day called me the fairy godmother of talent connections. And so that's definitely something that I just enjoy really very much. And I, I do believe in, in, there's a lot of research on it, that finding what you're really good at and then figuring out how do you leverage that in your professional life in a way where not just it brings you satisfaction, but you can also make a, a living out of it and a career out of it is something really important. Couldn't agree more. And I also agree with that. Those descriptions of you uh, within the talent space. Definitely Fairy Godmother is a is a wonderful way to encapsulate that. We're going to talk more about hiring specifically, because I think that's something you know better than most. But would love to just touch upon your time as a headhunter. You know, you work for one of the most prestigious brands out there and will have led some incredible searches. Was there a particular like major lesson that you took away from that time sitting on that side of the fence? I guess particularly for any headhunters listening to this and selfishly for myself, uh, given that I'm always looking to get better at what I do. What was most prominent? What came comes to mind when you think of a biggest lesson from that time? I think there's like three. It's one of the toughest jobs I can imagine. You're trying to really quickly understand a client's real needs, like not what they say, but what they really need, decode the culture, figure out where the right talent sits, bring the talent on a journey, but also bring the client on a journey. And so it's about how you build trust and relationships very quickly while it's simultaneously delivering something. So it's, it's really hard to figure out, like, where am I going to spend my time? Like, you don't have endless amounts of time and you become an extension of the firm almost. And so you, you have to get really good and nuanced of explaining what the role is, what the organization, what kind of person could work really well. The second lesson, and this was really a lesson I learned, unfortunately, the hard way is understanding how little people actually talk to their spouses or partners about their career aspirations. I've always been fascinated. Fascinating. There's a little bit of work, and, and it comes out of, of INSEAD by Jennifer Patrick Leary, who wrote a fabulous book called Couples That Work about dual career couples. But I had underestimated how late conversations can happen at home when you're already almost at the end of a process and it's now time to sign and to move the family to Australia and you haven't actually had the conversation first. So I, I made that, a, that was a hard lesson learned. I made it a point at the beginning to start talking about their family, their children, any pets they might own, any family members they might have that they want to look after just to, to also get a better understanding of what it had, was at. And then the last lesson is like you really learn and have to learn what's within your control and what's out of your control. And you have to let go of the things that are out of your control. I think you can bring the perfect candidate to the perfect company and it's not working out. It's not because you haven't done your job. It's because there are decisions that get taken by people and you can influence them or you can try to influence them, but they're not your decisions. And I think learning that makes it a lot easier to be resilient when things aren't going right. And often they aren't. Yeah, that resonates so much with me. It's one of the, hard the hardest parts of the job, but actually the most important, I think, to, to get comfortable with the fact that you can't control everything and I think a lot of us founders are control freaks in many ways and so it takes you almost have to learn to kind of deal with that and um, that's something that I think I've got better at over the years doesn't make it any easier but I think it saves a, a bit less emotional stress when you you know there's only so much you can do you ultimately went into the world of VC which obviously this mini series is all about and you know it that whole ecosystem so well so I'd love to know how did you end up working at Index? And why did you feel at the time that the time was right to make that switch? It was by total accident. This was not part of my plan. On the contrary, when uh, we were in the middle of lockdown, number two, I was very happy at Russell Reynolds. It's a fabulous firm with great colleagues. And I wasn't really looking for anything, but I got a phone call from a, a fellow headhunter from a different firm who said to me, you know, I have this role in venture capital. And I think I stopped him right there and said like, 
I don't think you need to talk to me, but tell me more about the job and I'll introduce people to you. And he kind of questioned, he's like, why do you not want to talk to them? And my perception of the industry at large and whether it's venture capital, private equity from the outside was a much more, more transactional, more service oriented, less relationship driven, and just not where I felt like I could really be at my best and I could be really be myself. And they were very smart. He, he kind of said to me, well, you know, so many people from what I understand, why don't you ask them? what they think about index. So before I even engaged in the process, I must have spoken to 30 plus people in my network about VC. I knew nothing really about the industry other than what you read in the headlines. So about the industry, about how they work, about how different firms are structured, what they thought about them, experience from founders who had gotten money, experience from founders who hadn't gotten money and kind of got all of that. And the feedback was so interesting that I thought, you know what, I need to have a conversation. And every single conversation I had during the process, I got more and more interested. And I thought my skill set, while very different, could really be beneficial. And we kind of came together at that. They all said similar things. It was really about the depth of relationships and the importance of relationship. It was a lot about integrity and walking away from things that weren't right for us or where we weren't the right people and really focusing on the long term rather than short term, which means you're you're a lot less susceptible to fall into some of the traps of the hype. And then it really was about the way talent is structured and, and talent is seen at Index. It's like it sets up the core of everything we do. When we look at future founders, when we look at our the executives and the operators we introduce, when we look at the founders, like it's all about building relationships and depth of relationship. And it's all about how do we help them find the best people, help them learn what that actually looks like and what the process looks like, and really be a partner to them on that, that growth journey. And then the final thing that was really important for me is like, it's an incredibly collaborative culture. It's a multi-stage fund. We're not organized and, and split into different silos. Um, we're a global firm, which means that whether you sit in San Francisco, New York, or London, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you're part of one firm and that's really how everything is done. And again, I found that very unique. So for me, I, I feel like this is like the, the one VC fund where, where everything I do and my values and my experience kind of fits with everything they do and their values and what they were looking for. Does sound like a perfect match. So I'm so glad that you you took that call in the end. But you did your due diligence, and that's kind of also a really important learning for anyone going for particularly senior roles. But just in general, it's uh, sometimes you you shouldn't just jump at things. You should you also shouldn't disregard them out of hand. Do your research, and it's amazing what you'll find out. It really is such a good match, and I love what you said about talent being at the core of the culture and the DNA of the business. And I think, sadly, there's a lot of firms that talk a good game and they they hire talent folk. But actually, at the end of the day, that is not at the top of the agenda. A bit like certain scale-ups that talk a lot about people in culture, but they don't have anyone at the leadership team level who's actually representing that agenda. And I think it's often quite telling. And everything that I've experienced with you, it's just so clear to me how important talent is at Index. I think that's a big reason why you, you know, you're such a successful business. I guess there are going to be people listening to this that are hearing your story and they are just, oh, I want to make that move. So for someone that's made the transition, particularly headhunters out there, recruiters, talent professionals, do you have any advice for anyone that, that would love to be in your shoes one day or, or is thinking about doing that move now? The biggest piece of advice is like, find out what the role is and what it isn't. I think like every fund, as he said, structures the team differently, the objectives differently, what people own, my my peers, and we're very close in the network of peers, especially here in Europe. All of us have nuances in our role. So understanding the nuances, understanding the nuances of the firms, you won't build big teams and you won't have systems. So you have to love the uncertainty and ambiguity. You have to be kind of driven and self-starter and motivated to set your own boundaries and KPIs and figure out how to learn and what to do. So there's a, there's a lot that is very different from a lot of other industries. And I think some people underestimate what that change will be. You're also, in at least at, at Index, you, you're not a recruiter. You're not a headhunter. And it's incredibly important to kind of get out of the mindset of a headhunter. You're not going to solve 
the problem for the founder. You're going to help them learn and you're going to guide and you're going to advise if that's what they want. And if it's not, that's fine as well. So it's a very different uh, role. So it's a lot about how do you engage your stakeholders? How do you stay very creative and relevant? And most importantly, how do you enjoy the craft? Because if you're not building team, you really have to love what you're doing every day and get your satisfaction out of that rather than saying you're, you're scaling an organization. That's great advice. Did you find that challenging to switch out of headhunter mode? Because I, I would imagine if it was me and then I was starting to talk with founders, we're going to talk about your, what your role actually entails, but I would find it so difficult not to go, right, I'm going to run with this. But I know that's not what the role is. So did you find that difficult or were there any other challenging aspects that you found when you moved? No, for me, it was that part wasn't difficult because it's probably the part I enjoyed the least about headhunting is the, the kind of like closing and going after. And, and I really love the advisory part of it. And I also feel I'm very blessed because I've seen so many different aspects around talent and people that I kind of go back into my toolkit from when I was leading HR or when I was advising people on their careers, right? There's, so there's all these different elements. I think what is really difficult is like figuring out what great looks like and setting that that kind of pace and setting the both the agenda in terms of learning really quickly while you're doing but also focusing on what really matters you can get distracted very easily in all of those roles there's uh, a lot of people who would love to meet me and and if I had the time I would too but it's not necessarily immediately relevant so I think that's probably one skill set you get as a headhunter that is easily transferable it's like how do you filter through and how do you make sure that you focus on the main thing rather than anything else. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. You mentioned that every VC firm has a slightly different structure to how they look at talent, people, platform, different people call it different things. And your role is very unique. So do you mind sharing what that looks like day to day, what the different aspects are? Because I think some people will probably have one view in their mind of what it is, but it's actually pretty different, I'd imagine, to, to that. So do tell us if you don't mind. Yeah, so we're, we are a very small team of experts. And the way we've structured it, and it's slightly different in Europe than it is in, in with my U.S. counterparts, is we kind of looked into the stages a company goes through and figured out what are the most important things we can help with. One is our journey with a founder. And that is split between the investment team and, and the talent and, and portfolio support. So our strategist function also includes teams that help on marketing and communications, a team that helps on potential customer and design partner introduction, and then the talent team. So when we think about the earliest part of the journey, it's that the seed series A stage, usually it's about getting the first engineering hires into the organization, maybe even bringing a founding engineer to them. Sometimes it's about like figuring out what that first leadership layer is. So the first directors, the first VPs, the first like really big hires that are going to help the company become interesting go to market, figure out whether the product is the right one. And so we're, we're helping with advice, helping founders learn. So whether that's an, a, a conversation about the different roles and an introduction to fabulous executives in those roles so that they start learning and, and get their pattern recognition from speaking to them to figure out, well, what kind of CFO do I actually need or what kind of salesperson do I need to think about? Whether that's helping them with their first headhunting experiences, so introducing them to the headhunting firms we partner with, helping them learn how to be a great client to a search firm as well and how to know how to engage there. And then obviously we help with introductions as well of, of people that we've met and, and kind of see whether anybody fits, but we don't run searches for them. We really fundamentally believe that the founders we back, we back them for a reason. We want them to be successful, but we also know that they're very driven. They're going to learn and there's not one way of doing things. So we really want to be be there for them. The other side of that is how we engage our network. And in Europe, I think that's one of the most fascinating things. Like I'm, I'm really excited about where the ecosystem is going. It's already so much more developed than it has been in the past. And there's still so much more to do. So we're building connections because we fundamentally believe that even if somebody doesn't end up in an index portfolio company, they will end up in another company and they just make the ecosystem even better. And so we're all going to benefit from it. So that part is a, a lot about building relationships with the people who will matter either today or tomorrow. And then the final piece is like kind of bringing all of that together and bringing the insights and knowledge back inside of index. So what are we hearing in terms of trends? What are some of the potential future founders that we might have picked up in companies and might have met? What are things, some of the challenges that founders are, are working on and how can can we actually in a systematic way help them? So that's kind of how, how we think about it. 
Love it. Thank you so much, Honda. Really interesting to hear more about what it entails. You are held in very high regard. I don't want to make you blush, but uh, you know everyone says great things about you, particularly founders that, that get to benefit from your advice. And I know this is a bit of an unfair question, picking your favorite child, but who are the founders that have left the biggest impression on you, whether it's at Index or before? And I'd love to know why, because there are a lot of aspirational early stage founders listening to this that will want to hone their craft and you know work with someone like yourself so any tips or pointers or examples would be great I was joking with my kids when I when I thought about what kind of questions you might ask that if you ask me about the favorite child I will do the same thing I do at home which is like there is no answer to this question but I did think about what they share and maybe maybe it would be helpful to just talk about like why I think like for me those are the most valuable relationships everybody has their story and everybody has their story that brought them to the point where they're at so for me like working with founders who are really talking about like why they're building what they're building like what drove them why is this a problem that they wanted to solve and how are they thinking about their own journey not just as a founder but as a leader of people as they're scaling their organization how do they learn how do they think about the people decisions they need to to make the more we share and the more we kind of like in with them alongside on that journey. I just love the diversity. And that's why I said earlier, there's there's no right way of doing things. There's very, very different ways of doing things. And if you look at our portfolio, it's very hard to compare the companies and compare their trajectories and stories, right? But there's something about the founders. There's like a almost like a pivotal moment in their career when they're on their scaling journey. And I do believe that it has a lot to do with their ability to attract, retain, and, and really make the best out of the talent they bring to the organization. And how they're therefore scaling themselves and their own skills as they're going along. And you have to make yourself really vulnerable to be able to be that great leader, which is really hard to do when you're building a high growth business. That is so true. That's so true. I, I love that. There are going to be, well, you, you actually gave some brilliant examples already when you were thinking about moving to into VC with Index of why it's such a great firm. So I think we've got a sense of that. But there are, you know, it is the sort of business that if I'm a, you know, many founders listening to this will want to pitch to Index. They'll want to have Index on the cap table. And that is no easy thing to do. So I'd love to get your advice for founders on when pitching to Index. What can help them stand out? And particularly as you get involved with with meeting founders uh, from across the ecosystem, what is it that you're specifically looking for? And how do you assess them that might give them a little edge or a better chance of working with you? I can obviously only give you my view from observing from the sidelines more than being the investor who makes the the call. But I think Hannah did a really great job when you had her on the podcast uh, last year or the year before. I think the most important thing is like really knowing what's the problem you want to solve and why do you think that's a worthwhile problem? How do you ask questions and how do you answer questions? How carefully do you listen to the clues that are being given to you? How honest are you about the things you don't know? And it's much less about numbers. I think it really comes back to the relationship question. I index investors want to get to know the founders. They want to know that they will be the right partner. And it's part of the tricky thing when you say no. I know it's incredibly hard to take on the other side, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean you you shouldn't be building the company you're building. It just means that sometimes we might not be the right partner or it might not be the right time for us to partner. And so we think about the longer term relationship. I think we also really invest in companies that want to disrupt. So the, the focus is on the people. We spike really high on, on those who are mission-driven and who have high integrity and who are thinking about this as a long-term journey rather than a quick way of making an exit. And so the decision always has to be like, do we actually want to work together for a decade, maybe more? Do we want to sit in meetings together when things are not going well, which inevitably there will be moments like this. And as part of that, one of the questions is like, do we have the belief that these founders can attract talent and recognize what great talent looks like? Have they done this before? If they've been in companies, how do they approach talent? How do they think about it? How do they talk about it? How do they talk about the things they don't know? And I think so all of that kind of come together. And then obviously, is it a an industry or a sector we're interested in? Is it something we have experience in? Is it in a market where we have experience? I think a lot of those filters are applied, which is why it's so important for founders who are going on their fundraise to really understand what every VC spikes in and to get to know the right one and pick the right partner for them. 
That's, yeah, really brilliant advice, Sandra. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, it's actually a great segue into talking about talent because you alluded to talent there and the importance of it. And you know a lot about this topic. So I wanted to start by asking for any secrets to success that you picked up along the way about when it comes to hiring like that exceptional top 1% of talent because it is the hardest part of the job in my experience it's why I have a career but it's also the thing that I find hardest at JBM to do so what is your advice and any secrets to success you've learned I think one and that's probably the most difficult is figuring out what do you really need and that is not just the role, but it's really looking at the future, at the competencies you need in your organization and figuring out how you build a very complementary team rather than having uh, people who are just all of the same. And that's very hard to do when you've never scaled a business before, when you're all of a sudden going into a stage of growth that you haven't done before because you have to learn everything. So being very open with your investors and your network on what you want to learn about certain roles, about what excellence looks like, and figuring out how do you take from these people that you meet the learning back into your own organization and create a role. What does that mean? Does it mean you have to have a different structure? Do you have the right people? You have to think about the shift in demand. Like right now, we're seeing a lot of companies obviously focusing on profitability more than they may have done in previous years where the focus was much more on growth and like very, very fast growth. And so figuring out what does it mean for my organization to be successful in the future? What are the skills I need and where do I get them? I think the second thing that I'm sometimes surprised by is how vast the list of, of skills and competencies and experiences is that you would like. And the default is almost sometimes to say, like, I want people who have done this exact job at company XYZ, and it's a very small pool. Instead of really going underneath, well, what does that actually mean? And how do we figure out whether these people are successful, right? So we, we do spend some time also on what is a, a structured competency interview and how do you think about competencies and how do you get better at doing this? And then finally is like having your stories straight like you need to be able particularly in this market you need to bring people along so you need to think about what's my value proposition for my employees where do I want to take them you need to think about especially when you're a small and unknown entity how do you use employee stock option grants to to attract people to make them feel like they're they're really part of the organization and part of the success. And when I think about index, like one of the things we've been doing for over 10 years is to enhance and help Europe uh, change its legislation so that more countries offer a very advantageous tax program when it comes to, to stock options. We actually the other day calculated how European companies approach equity and the changes in legislation. And employees in Europe now own uh, $5 billion more than they did five years ago. So it's paying off, but there's a, a lot there. And then the final thing, and that's really resilience. It is not a fast mix. Like It is hard to hire. Like, you will get it wrong. Not every hire, no matter how great they are, is the right fit for your organization or will land well. It doesn't stop at hiring. That's when the hard work starts. The onboarding, the making sure people are successful, the building a team, and particularly on the executive level, building that team, that takes a lot of time and resilience. And so you, you just need to give yourself as well a longer term perspective rather than I'm just going to fill the hires and then everything is going to be fine. Yeah, everything you say, it just it really chimes with my experiences. And I think it's really good to talk about this and I really hope founders listening will will take this on board because it's amazing you mentioned storytelling and kind of knowing your value proposition it's incredible how many founders go into processes and one thinks that everyone's totally aligned and that they've got that part down but actually haven't thought about it or they wrongly assume they don't need to sell the opportunity and the vision more. It's, you know, it's, it's, we're assessing you, so you should be interested in us. And, and it's a real faux pas and one that sadly we see great founders making that mistake. But I think if you learn, it is a journey and we all make mistakes and you're never going to get it right a hundred percent of the time. And, and that's okay. Thank you, Sandra. It's uh, it's great to hear your perspectives on this. The assessment piece is something I'm interested in. It, it, I think it's a real art form. It's something that you have to really work on and, and develop. So how do you go about the kind of the assessment side? And do you have any tips for whether it's headhunters or founders who are trying to, you know, nail a really tricky leadership hire, how they can have a better hit rate when it comes to assessing talent? The ones I have seen do this incredibly well have a good understanding what the competency, underlying competencies are that they're assessing against. And they almost orchestrate a 
an interview process that is incredibly clear and concise, but at the same time goes very deep. So instead of everybody having the same conversation, it's almost figuring out who's going to check for the leadership and the value alignment, who's going to check on the strategic side, what they've done, who's going to look for and kind of bring that together. They also usually have a a lot of on-site, so in-person meetings at one point where they talk about a real-life problem. And that's less to assess whether somebody has already done this, but more to really get a mutual feeling of, do we want to work together? How would we tackle a problem like this? And so the more time I find you spend up front really being very clear on what's the process, what are the competencies that are important, who are the people in the process that will have a yes or no, and who are the people who will give an opinion and give their, their insights but are not necessarily a a voting kind of interview and then figuring out how you get to know the person on the other side. The founders that have really been able to blow us away with some of the hires have all spent significant amount of time getting to know the candidate outside of the job, getting to know what they're passionate about, getting to know their families. And that can be, you know, something like going on a hike with a family of a candidate in the final stages to continue conversations and just, you know, speak about other things than what is going on in the job interview. We had a, a candidate who was a real lover of board games, who, who received by surprise a board game at home. Now, all of these are like, you know, little touches that just make the relationship between the founder and the candidate a very different one. And it doesn't become transactional. It really becomes about projecting themselves into the future of working together and therefore also bringing themselves to work rather than just being that I'm in an interview setting and I need to be able to say the things I have to say to get the role. Yeah, I love that. And that brings the barriers down as well, doesn't it? If you're engaging in different contexts and situations and getting to know them at that deeper level on both sides, in the long run, that is so much better for everyone. We often see people, and we're probably all guilty of it, that you're going into interview mode and trying to say the right things, but actually hiring and, and making senior moves is a big thing for in all aspects of life. So you want to do it justice by being authentic. And I think that goes both ways, doesn't it? I love that. I'm going to, yeah, board game. What a, lo- what a lovely touch. That is really thoughtful. That would make me feel really heard and understood. I guess in times of economic uncertainty, which we are in, uh, albeit hoping for a really more positive year ahead, what advice do you have when it comes to retaining talent? Because we often talk about attracting talent and hiring and all that good stuff. But actually, when you have exceptional talent, if you can't retain it, then it's, it's sort of even worse. So what tips are you giving your founders at the moment to index and uh, advice that our listeners can, uh, can heed? One thing is you you need to know who your top talent is. So the more time you spend also internally on figuring that out, not just on those reporting to you, but on the up and comers in the organization, when if they were to leave now, it would really damage your business and it would take a long time to set it back up. Understanding their motivation, spending time with them, figuring out where they're at in their own career journey, being really creative about moving people to roles and stretching them into in different ways, I find can really reinvigorate a relationship when, you know, knowing who's loose. And sometimes, by the way, that's a good thing. I think it's a, a little bit of a myth that everybody who joins an organization needs to stay for the entire part of the journey. For some people, it's the first part of the journey that's the most important and most interesting and when they're at their best. And for others, it's that later stage and, and they wouldn't be the right ones at the beginning. Using all kinds of tools that you have, like when it comes to equity refreshes, uh, thinking creatively about it. I once read, I've, I've been trying to find the study, but I, I once read a study at Harvard that the motivational impact of money wears off after four weeks. Meaning that four weeks after you've given somebody that raise or you've done something, if the motivation will go down to the level it was before you gave them the raise. So that's not what it is. So it's about being engaged and seeing the mission and feeling part of a journey that for most people is so much more important than simply saying, I'm giving you a raise. Now, that being said, we're also in a very highly competitive market. Compensation is changing in Europe. Compensation is going up faster. So if you were to hire on the outside, chances are you would have to to pay for the same role a lot more than you did in the last couple of years. So you also need to stay really aware of what's happening in the market. And the people function in most organizations is seeing as much more strategic as it used to be. My hope it will continue to be seen as very vital and strategic because there's a lot of knowledge and experience in, in the chief people officers and VP people and any people leaders we have in Europe to help 
help founders think through how do they actually retain that top talent. And then the flip side of that, though, is also having an eye out talent that isn't part of your organization. You know, you might have met people through an interview process who said no to you or they weren't the right one for the role. Figuring out how you continuously build your own access to great talent on the outside, how you find out who else is out there, how you talk to your employees about them bringing in other people who are really great. I think that's also part of the the making sure that you get the right people in the organization and keep them. It's a great answer and it's multifaceted and it just shows how hard but important it is and that there are different ways to uh, to kind of give yourself the best shot when it comes to both attracting and retaining talent. Thank you, Sandra. We are fast approaching our wrap-up questions. So there's a couple I really want to get in before we wrap up. And I guess the slightly selfish question, but considering my day job, I've obviously worked with many founders, many VCs, and naturally believe that a headhunter is a very important strategic partner to them. And I'd love to get your very unique viewpoint on this, having been a headhunter in a top firm and then worked with many search firms at index and definitely you're someone that really knows the value of search there are going to be founders listening to this that might be skeptical about headhunters there'll be ones that have utilized them and maybe had a indifferent experience so i'd love to just hear your thoughts on what are the advantages of working with an executive search firm and how can critically how can founders really make the most of that relationship with a headhunter for me it starts at Understanding that your headhunter is the person who will partner with you through a very difficult search. And so you, when you choose them as well, I would spend a lot of time figuring out, like, how, will they actually push back on me? Will they tell me things I don't want to hear? And how will they tell me things I don't want to hear? They're the independent advisors, your investors, your board, everybody will always have opinions. And the headhunter obviously has an objective to close a search, but great headhunters don't close searches. They solve problems with founders and with executives, and they want to continue that partnership and journey for a long time. So they have a very long-term vision. And so having that independent advisor from whom you can learn about how others have done it, uh, where you can learn about failures, where you can learn about things that go well, and where you can learn about either a function or a market or a geography because they're in it every day and they see what is happening outside of your own company in your own industry. I think that's the one thing that's really valuable. I always, when I talk to founders about headhunters, help them think through, it's like the extension of your company. These are fundamentally the most important storytellers of your story in the market. Because whether or not somebody engages, it matters a little less. They will hear the story about a company and all of a sudden you will be on their radar. And so being able to have the storyteller in the market is a key advantage for me when when I think about um, having a search firm. And then to really get the most out of it, you have to commit. You can't send somebody else to the meetings. You can't just send them material. It's a partnership, so which means it goes both ways. And it has to be open and honest and transparent, but it also needs to move quick. And so particularly, I think we sometimes underestimate how difficult it is to close a candidate. Everybody agrees this is the right person, but you still have to convince them. And most great candidates will have options and they will have choice and they will have considerations. And so you need to work like in tandem with them on figuring out how do we make sure that we really can close the best candidate? And if it doesn't work, where do we go next? Yeah, amazing answer. And yeah, that partnership piece is just so important. And that's frankly, as a headline, that's the bit that you enjoy the most when you really feel like a valued partner and that you're all pushing in the same direction to achieve a great outcome for everyone. Absolutely love that. But we're at our final three questions. So what is the best piece for career advice that you would like to leave our listeners with as we kick off 2024? You have to be a giver more than a taker. And I don't mean this in a strategic and calculated way, but I think you really have to integrate that help other people solve problems and things will fall into place and people will be there for you. And like networks don't get activated when you need them. Networks are continuous work because you should enjoy spending time with others and helping them. And so that's definitely my biggest piece of advice on your career is like think very broadly about how you can add value to other people in your life. Love that. Yeah, pay it forward and it will come back around for sure. And what are you personally most excited about in 2024? And I'd love to hear professionally when it comes to talent and index, also what you're really excited about. So as I said earlier, I'm a single parent of two fantastic children who keep me busy and on my toes as they're they're growing up. For me, the most important actually in life, and, and I was reflecting a lot of this having heard over the holidays, this saying that in a hundred years, nobody on this earth will care about the fact that you lived and nobody will know that you lived anymore with the exception of a few. 
And I was thinking a lot, like, what does that actually mean for me now and how I live my life? So, so making memories and creating like a real impact so that I can, I can leave my children with something that they can take away and they can talk about. I've experienced grief a couple of years ago, and it's definitely the memories those those moments that even now I still find a lot of joy in thinking back. So that's on a personal level. It's like making the time to make memories with friends, with family, with children. Professionally, I think continuing to create opportunities for people who didn't have them before. I, As I told you, I, I like elevating the voices of those who don't have them. So I, I do spend part of my time meeting those who probably would never think about meeting someone like me or who don't have as much opportunity and helping them think through their own life and career and how to be resilient when the, the hill seems so steep to climb in front of you and being able to kind of be a, a guide through a couple of, of their steps that they might make in their career. I love that. And I think you're a shining example of given the early upbringing you had and the resilience and challenges that you've had to overcome, a real inspiration to anybody that you can really can do what you put your mind to. And I think that's, um, that's it's great that you spend the time doing that because it, it really does make a difference. And I think if we all did that a little bit more, you know, the world would be definitely a better place and there'd be so much more opportunity for people who don't necessarily have the privilege. Finally, Sandra, considering that this is 40 Minute Mentor, if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I must say I have two fantastic mentors in Peter Goldmark, who I mentioned, who has always been the person who pushed me way out of my comfort zone and never told me what to do, but always asked the questions, the hard questions that got me onto my path. And my mom, quite frankly, who has an extraordinary story, both as an individual and an executive, and who has been my my guiding light throughout all of this. So I'm not sure there's anybody else who could kind of come into that that pops to mind. I would definitely say to anybody out there who's thinking about mentoring, mentoring can come from really strange places. And it doesn't have to be anybody who is more advanced in their career or who's like the aspirational role you want to do. It can come from people who are way younger than you and who have different stories. So I, I would just say I, I'm probably mentored by pretty much any person I meet because I take something from their stories. But there isn't anybody who's dead that I think I must absolutely meet and want to learn from them. I'd rather be around those who are alive on this earth right now. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. That's lovely that, to see the impact that your mentors have had on your career. And also the point about mentors do come in lots of different forms. And I think it's, it's great to break down this traditional notion of it's got to be the most senior person in an industry or whatever that is just not the case and um you know i find even when you mentor somebody that is less experienced than you you actually get tons back from that as a mentor so it's a two-way thing and i just hope people listening to this that don't have any form of mentorship will use this interview as a form of it and then go out there and seek some because you know we can all do with some and benefit from it sandra thank you so much it is always a joy seeing you i always have a lot of fun chatting to you it's always very inspiring and i'm really very grateful that you took the time to do this because i know a lot of other people are now going to get to benefit from your experience and wisdom so thank you so much well, and thank you for creating this platform, James. I think you're doing a fantastic job as well in elevating the ecosystem. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Well, I'll see you soon. Look forward to it. Thanks again. And that is all from us today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you're a new listener and haven't left us feedback before, we would really appreciate it if you did. We'd love to hear what you love most about 40 Minute Mentor and how you think we can make it even better. So if you have 30 seconds after this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could head to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a rating and review. You can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if we've left any questions unanswered in today's episode, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes then please do let our head of marketing Hannah know thank you so much again for all your support and I hope to see you next Wednesday for even more pocket-sized mentorship mm-hmm.